Well, the good news of Jesus Christ began 2,000 years ago concerning His death and resurrection. And it's been bearing fruit in the lives of men and women throughout church history for the past 2,000 years. And to see the gospel bear fruit in a young man's life, in Joe, it is a thrill, thoroughly encouraging to hear God's work in his heart and his life. I remember when he first got saved, one of his first responses was he wanted to uh, share with all of you and confess his sins and apologize for deceiving us for so many years. And I told him you would get that opportunity, and he had that opportunity today. And I've um, been real encouraged to see him not just have an experience of salvation uh, last year, but to continue to grow, to be steadfast, to abide in the vine, and to continue to bear much fruit in the Lord. And it's an amazing, amazing thing. We've been in our church for some time. I think it's the first time in Cornerstone history where all the four pios are doing well in Christ. <laughs> so we should just close doors right now and wait for Christ's return because it's all good, the four pios. It's a miracle. Um, oh, praise God, Joe. We're praying for you. We're laboring next to you. And we look forward to uh, seeing you make many people uncomfortable and challenge people for the cause of Christ. Well, continuing our study in John 15, last time, two weeks ago, I got a lot of ribbing from a lot of you that my sermon was so short, so I think you owe me about 20 minutes, <laughs> so I'm going to demand payment this morning. Um, we're going to um, continue to study verses 9 through 11, although Francis read from verse 1. Christian books are my joy. I love Christian books. This past Shepherds Conference, I did not go to the bookstore because it's a source of temptation for me. And I didn't want to be tempted with buying more books because books are my joy, but they're also my burden. I love reading good Christian books. And yet, I need to read so much more. And once in a while, I come across a book that becomes significant to my heart, to my spiritual life, to my thoughts. A book that is so filled with powerful truths that it literally becomes a part of who I am. It becomes a part of my paradigm, part of my doctrine, part of my philosophy of life and ministry. The truths of its pages remain with me for months, years after I've closed the book. And one such book I recommend highly to you is Legacy of Sovereign Joy by Pastor John Piper, Legacy of Sovereign Joy. I began, I don't know when I first read the book, but I reread it several times. The book highlights the lives and teachings of three prominent men in church history. The pastor's Piper, Pastor Piper's masterful and engaging description of each man is inspiring both spiritually and intellectually, both to the heart and to the head. The three men that he describes are Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the final one is the one I want to briefly share with you this morning. Let me introduce to you, to many of you, maybe for the very first time, Aurelius Augustinus, known to most as Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Hippo. He was a spiritual giant in every way. A giant sequoia in the midst of saplings. His influence in the Western world, no less, the Western church is simply staggering. Adolf Harnock said that he was the greatest man the church has ever possessed between the Apostle Paul and Luther, the Reformer. Benjamin Warfield argued that through Augustine's writings, he, quote, entered both the church and the world as a revolutionary force and not merely created an epoch in the history of the church but determine the course of the church up to the present day. The publishers of Christian History Magazine says, quote, After Jesus and Paul, Augustine of Hippo is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. It was Augustine who gave us the Reformation, not only because Luther was an Augustinian monk, and not merely because Calvin quoted Luther, Calvin quoted Augustine more than any other theologian, but because the Reformation witnessed the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace 
over the legacy of the Pelagian view of man. It was Augustine who rightly understood Paul. That man is not neutral. Man is born in sin. Man is utterly depraved. He is helpless to trust in Christ. He is, his will is bound to depravity. It was Augustine who understood that, articulated that, and Reformation was the fruit that was born out of Augustine's understanding. Biographer Augustino Trabe gives this excellent summary of Augustine's powers that make him incomparable in the history of the church. He said Augustine was a philosopher, theologian, mystic, and poet all in one. His lofty powers complemented each other and made the man fascinating in a way difficult to resist. He was a philosopher but not a cold thinker, a theologian but also a master of the spiritual life. He was a mystic but also a pastor. He was a poet but also a controversialist, meaning he defended and fought defended right doctrine and fought against error. Every reader thus finds something attractive and even overwhelming. Depth of metaphysical intuition, rich abundance of theological proofs, synthetic power and synergy, energy, psychological depth shown in spiritual sense, and a wealth of imagination, sensibility, and mystical fervor. Augustine of Hippo was indeed a spiritual giant, but his testimony reveals that his early life indicated very little of the giant that he would become. He was born in Tagast, uh, near Hippo, in what is now Algeria, in November 13, 354 A.D. This is how he describes his life before Christ. As I grew to manhood, I was inflamed with desire for a surfeit of hell's pleasures, abundance of hell's pleasures. When I went to Carthage at the age of 19, I found, I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. And he reveled in it. Swollen with conceit, he utterly gave himself over to sexual lusts and pleasures. He gave himself to immoral pursuits, particularly attracted to the immoral lifestyle of the theater, the Greek theater. In the midst of a sinful lifestyle, he devoted himself to search for truth that would appease his heart. For 11 years, he sought the truth, but he was unable to find it. He moved to Milan in Italy, and he went to hear Ambrose, the preacher of the Christian gospel, more as a curiosity than as an earnest seeker. As he heard Ambrose preach, gradually the gospel of divine truth penetrated his heart, and he received into his soul and yet, it was only a peripheral commitment to the gospel. He wrote, I was astonished that although now I loved you, I did not persist in my enjoyment of God. Your beauty drew me to you, but soon I was dragged away from you by my own weight, and in dismay I plunged again into the sins of this world. He was held back, not by intellectual uh, reasons, but by sexual lust. He said, I was held firm in the bonds of woman's love. Then came one of the most important days in the church history since the book of Acts. In late August, 386, Augustine was almost 32 years old. He was strung by his own bestial bondage to lust. When others were free and holy in Christ, these are his words, there was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I was beside myself, driven by the tumult in my breast to take refuge in this garden where no one could interrupt that fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness that would bring me insanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself, for not accepting God's will and entering into your covenant. I tore my hair, hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. I was held back from following Christ by mere trifles. I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. In my misery, I kept crying out, 
How, how long shall I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? He experienced his bond, bondage, slavery to sin. He could find no escape and he cried out to God. All at once I heard a song of a child in a nearby house again and again repeated the refrain, take it and read, take it and read. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of scripture and to read the first passage on which my eye should fall. And I read the passage, the first passage on which my eyes fell, and it was Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was though the light of confidence flood into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. 386 A.D., after a lifetime of sin and rebellion, a lifetime of decadent pursuits, Christ saved Aurelius Augustine. He was saved by Christ, becoming a champion for the cause of the gospel. After his salvation, he wrote his testimony a 300-page volume testimony, and he called it Confessions. He's confessing Christ, confessing his sins. And in it, he considered what was going on in his heart all those years living in sexual sin. What was driving him to pursue uh, these things? Augustine analyzed his own motivations down to its root, and this is his conclusion. Everything springs from delight. This is universal. Every man, whatsoever his condition, desires to be happy. There is no man who does not desire this. And each one desires with such, with such earnestness that he prefers it above all other things. This is what guides and governs the will. Namely, what we consider to be our delight. You made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace till they rest in you. He said, all those years, I was driven by my desire to be happy, to be satisfied, to find peace, love, and joy. After his salvation, he said, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys. After salvation, he sees that all those joys were fruitless which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light, you are, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves, O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. What an insight that every man is motivated by desire to be happy. He said, but the true happiness, true joy, is the sovereign joy found in Christ. Everyone here, every man, every woman, every child, we are driven to pursue happiness. All that we do in our lives, we are seeking peace, love, and joy. But apart from Christ, they are fruitless joys. We chase, we pursue, we run in vain for true peace. True joy is found in Christ alone. If this morning you're chasing after peace, you'll never find it. If you're searching for joy and love, in things of this world, in relationships and possessions, 
It will always be elusive. Because they are all in Christ. True peace, true love, true joy belongs to Christ. If and when we see Christ and find Him, peace is a fruit. Love is a result. Joy is the possession of Christ that He gives to us. And that is what we've been studying for the past several weeks. That even as Christians, we are oftentimes led astray from the true and sovereign joy of Christ. We find ourselves wandering and seeking these things apart from Christ. And I come across such Christians very often. When I come across them, I think to myself, here is a restless Christian, a half-hearted Christian, held back by trifles. They are discontent unhappy, unsatisfied. They're always seeking, not in Christ, not in Scripture, but seeking something in this world to satisfy them. They're always wanting, always lacking. Therefore, they're constantly chasing after something in this world to give them lasting joy, even as Christians. Some kind of entertainment, some kind of pleasure or achievement, some kind of status in life or even in ministry. And yet, they are restless because they are unsatisfied. It is in vain. We have been discovering from John 14 and John 15 that Christ is a possessor of all these things. John 14, 27, Christ said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Christ has true peace. And He gives to those who abide in Him. John 15, verse 9. Abide in My love. True love belongs to Christ. And it is is experienced by those who abide in Christ. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He lays it out for us clearly. That having these things is a decision that each person makes before Christ and also a decision that each Christian makes after Christ. That if you abide in Christ, you will have peace, love, and joy. But if you do not abide in Christ, you can be a Christian. And that There are many such Christians who are believers, who are saved, but do not have peace, love, and joy. Our passage today, 9-11, through 11, tells us how believers can know, experience, and possess true love and true joy. If you are in some area of your life, or maybe at the core of your heart, restless, unsatisfied, if you are thirsty this morning, hungering for true joy, well, this message is for you. It is. Go to verse 9 and look at the manner of our Lord's love for us. It's an amazing verse. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Here we find the highest affection of which we can conceive. The perfect Father's perfect love to His perfect Son. A perfect Father will have an imperfect love if His Son is imperfect. In prodigal son, the father is a great father, but I mean his love must have been hindered by the fact that his son was so foolish, was so rebellious, was so sinful. And that's the love we experience, even from our parents. That though our parents love us, because of our sinfulness, sometimes it's hard for them to love us. It is a difficulty, a challenge, them, challenge for them to have affection. Well, not so with God the Father and Jesus the Son. God the Father loved Him with perfect love, without any hindrance, because Jesus Christ was holy. He was perfect. He was pure. He was completely obedient. And Christ said that as the Father has loved me with that familial, that family love, I have loved you This is the love that Jesus has given to us. 
gracious love, compassionate love, unfailing love, undeserved love. The adjectives are infinite. J.C. Ryle said, this remarkable statement shows the depth and magnitude of the Lord's love to His people. Jesus likens His love for us in the same force, intensity, and amount as God the Father's love for Jesus, His only Son. I read this quote last time, two weeks ago. Got to read it again. By the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He said, in the love of Christ, we find our best joy. The pastures of the great shepherd are wide, but the sweetest grasses grow close to his pierced feet. The love of Jesus is the center of salvation. It is as the sun in the midst of the heavens of grace. Paul said when he spoke of marriage, Behold, I show you a mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. There is always much that is a mystery here but it is ever the mystery of love. The love of Christ to His people is the sweetest, fullest, and most profitable theme. End quote. Do we understand that Christ loves us with this perfect love? If we do, there's only one right response to that perfect love. Second part of verse 9. And here is the mandate, the command the order of Christ to us, abide in my love. The essential and fundamental command by the Lord to us is to remain in His love, to be steadfast, to continue in His love. It is in the imperative mood. Menate, abide, remain, be steadfast, continue in my love. He commands us to remain in His love. The question is how? How do I remain in Christ's love? How does that take place? How does that occur? How does that happen? We find that out in verse 10. It has, we find that it has very little to do with our emotions. Very little to do with sentiment, ideas of romantic feelings, of experience, emotions. Very little to our our maybe common understanding of love in the church, especially in the world, right? Like Jesus is my boyfriend kind of worship, worship songs. And that kind of approach to Christian life. Or Jesus is our, like close love songs, but with Jesus at the end. That is not how we remain in God's love, in Christ's love. Verse 10, here we find the means, the way of abiding in Jesus' love. If you keep my commandments you will abide in my love. Very simple. Very straightforward. Very clear. Three quick points concerning this verse. First of all, again, He loves us in and through His commandments. Our Lord expresses His love for us not through some mystical way by giving us love in our hearts, by hairs on our back or a gut feeling or in the butterflies in our stomach or I don't know what you guys equate with love. That's not how we see Christ's love for us. We see Christ's love through His commandments. The commandments of our Lord are expressions of His love for us. All of it. His precepts, His decrees given directly through Him and inspired by the Holy Spirit, through His apostles, all of it emanates from His love for us. So very important that we have this mindset. It, it should transform our perspective on the Scriptures. It should shift us in our understanding of God's love for us. You know, as we, we have laws governing traffic, we have laws governing our, how we handle finances or taxes. And we think that is same with the Bible. These laws are arbitrary, laws given to us by God to control us, to get us to do, to do things that we don't want to do. And we think it comes from some, someone or something that is cold, heartless, uncaring. Well, with the government, that is true. With our school system, it might be the case. But not so with Christ. 
we too often forget the God that is behind these commands. His motivations in giving us His commandments. God's commands, His instructions, His prohibitions. They are all His expressions of His love. They are all expressions of His love for us. Turn with me to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, 6-11. Here we find the tender love of God that motivated His commands to Israel. Why we should obey God's commands. Here we see the reasoning behind it. Deuteronomy 7, 6-9. God said, You are a holy people. People holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. In fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, that the, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Go down to verse 11. You shall therefore... Consider that therefore. It's going back to verses 6 through 9. Because of God's love for you, because of His steadfast, unfailing, compassionate love for you, in fact, love that is undeserved, He has given us these commands because He loves us. He wants the best for us. You shall therefore, the right response, be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you to you. Rules that I command you today. Important for us to have a right understanding of God's law. They're not arbitrary commands, burdens for us. Why is God messing with my life? Why so many commands? Why so many instructions and prohibitions? We forget that each command is given to us because of His love for us. Second point about this is that obedience is the correct way the proper way to experience Christ's love. The appropriate way, the right way to experience Christ's love. Now think with me here. This makes sense to, to me. I hope it makes sense to you. How do we experience? How do we know personally the love of Christ? One approach is just through feeling, through sentiment. Through some kind of spiritual experience, we sense in our hearts or in our inward being the love of Christ. According to verse 9 and 10, we experience Christ's love by obeying His commands. Christ's love is experienced and known in every area of our lives when we submit ourselves wholly and completely to His commands. We experience His love firsthand when we see personally the benefits of obeying His decrees. Let me say that again. Please understand this. We personally know and experience Christ's love when we obey Christ's commands. It is through the obedience of Christ's commands in various areas of our lives where we experience firsthand His love. Let me explain this. My dad and I, you know, growing up with a very difficult relationship, to say I was disobedient would be an understatement. Um, you know, I'll just say, just trust me. I don't want to say anymore. Um, well, my dad and I, for the past several years, we've had a really good, we're, God has granted us a very good relationship. We are able to fellowship together, and 
uh, we are able to really enjoy and enjoy a blessed time of fellowship together. What is the reason for this? It is because both of us are obeying Christ in our relationship. He is obeying Christ and I'm obeying Christ. And because we're obeying Scripture, we have this blessed relationship. And as, we, as I step back from that, I experience God's love for me. God commanded me to honor my father, to love him, to pray for his salvation. And because of that, I'm enjoying the benefits of, of obeying his commands. Does that make sense? Another example, husband and wife example. The Bible tells husbands, Colossians 3.19, to love your wives and not to be embittered against them. 1 Peter 3.7, Bible tells husbands, to live with your wives in an understanding way. Ephesians 5.25, the Bible tells husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Die for your wife. Well, let's say you're a Muslim. The Quran says in Surah 4.34, and Bakajan told me about this, that as for those wives who you fear to be disloyal, admonish them. Secondly, refuse to share their beds. And third, beat them. Right? Uh, a suspicion of disloyalty on the part of a wife is justification for the husband to beat their wives. And so this is an epidemic in the Muslim community that is not talked about. The Quran encourages beating of wives by husbands. So let's say you're a Muslim and you beat your wife physically. Beat her. Because you're not obeying Scripture, the Bible, you will not experience God's love in that relationship. The benefits of obeying Christ, of experiencing God's love. But if you are a husband, and in your husband-wife relationship, you obey Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, Ephesians 5. You'll have this great relationship with your, with your wife. And you'll say, how did this come about? Was I just lucky? Am I just blessed? Do I just have a good personality? Is this the reason? No, you'll say, this is the love of God. God's shown His love for me by giving me these commandments. And as I run the path of His commandments, He blesses me and I experience firsthand God's love for me. Right? Are you understanding what the Bible is saying? Not just in every relationship, with your children. Right? You know, you say, oh, I just have rotten kids. You know, my children are just little monsters. God, why did you do this to me? I thought you loved me. Do you not realize God has given us commands in Proverbs, in Colossians, in Ephesians, in the Gospels, on how we are to raise, teach, and discipline our children? If we obey the Word of God, we'll raise up children where we will experience God's love. If we neglect the Scriptures and we raise our children according to the empty way of life taught to us by our forefathers, you will say, does God love me? Right? How come God gave me these awful kids or awful kids? Likewise in friendship, likewise in ministry. You do ministry according to the Word of God, you experience God's love. Wow, God loves me. Wow, God loves His people. If you do ministry according to your own earthly philosophy, you won't know God's love. Whether it's work, whether it's friendships, this is how we experience God's love. And thirdly, the obvious one, the correct means of abiding in Christ's love is by obedience. It's by obedience. Simple, right? Um, I mean, if the charismatic movement has done any harm, it has done harm in this area of how we have a love relationship with Christ. It is not through some... It's not through just tears or experiences or emotions or experiences. All of that is fine and good if it is based on the Word of God and obeying the Word of God. But if it's divorced from obedience, then it is empty. That's all it is. It is temporal. It is fleeting. It is passing. The way to abide in Christ's love is to obey His commands. Second part of verse 10, our Lord points to Himself. Christ modeled this kind of abiding in 
and love. And he points to himself. Just look at me. He is not like the Pharisees. He didn't live a hypocritical life where he taught one thing and did another. He lived out his own commands. And one need to look no further than look at the life of Christ to see how to abide in God's love. Abide in my love by keeping my commandments, verse 10, just as I have kept my Father's commandment, commandments and abide in His love. Our Lord modeled this abiding by faithfully and perfectly keeping the Father's commandments to Him. John 4, 34. My food, my hunger in life is to do the will of Him who sent me and accomplish His work. John 8.29 He who sent me is with me. I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. John 12.49 I have spoken not of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. John 14.31 But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 17.4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Our Lord says, that's how I abide, how I remain, how I continue in my Father's love. It is through abiding, it's through obedience, submitting myself to His will, to His commandments. Likewise with you, abide in my love by obeying, obeying my commandments. And then to close, we find the Lord's motivation, the motivation behind His command. Verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. These things refer to verses 1 through 10. What is the purpose? What is the motivation? What is the reasoning behind Christ's call, command to us to abide in Him? so that we might have joy. That we might have Christ's joy and have it abundantly. You think of those words, the joy of Christ, and you have to turn to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Please turn with me. And we see the great description of Christ's joy as He went to the cross. Hebrews 12, 1, verse 2. The background picture is that of running a race, likely referring to the Isthmian Games of Greece. And the writer of Hebrews says in verse 1, Jesus, founder and perfecter of our faith, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look at the next clause. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Here, Christ ran the race of faith. He went to the cross not for any self-centered pleasure, not for even the satisfaction of seeing people healed, being comforted. He didn't go to the cross, ultimately even, to see people saved. He did not leave His Father's presence, His heavenly glory. He did not endure temptation, experiencing fierce opposition by Satan himself, suffering ridicule, scorn, blasphemy, torture, and crucifixion, all for anything in this world. He was motivated by immeasurably more than this. He ran the race of faith for the joy of glorifying the Father, of pleasing God. He said this in John 17, 4-5, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was Christ's joy? As He went through the shame of the cross, there was an undergirding joy in His heart. And what was that? It was joy 
of knowing that God was pleased, that his father was honored, that God was glorified. This reminded me of um, one of the stories that Rex shared years ago. I might get the details wrong, but the core of it is right. He played Little League, and his last up at bat in Little League, and uh, I don't know, it's tied or down by one or something. I was going to ask him, but didn't have time. Anyway, uh, he was up at bat, and he hit the ball, maybe your only home run of your whole life. <laughs> Literally. He hit a home run. And then, who did he look at? Who did he turn to? To the pitcher and say, I got you? No. <laughs> to his coach? Right? To the stands? To the crowds? Who did Rex look at? He looked at his dad. And saw his dad. Hands lifted up. And excited and cheering him on. And that's what he shared. Right, why, do, why do fathers make it a point to go to their son's little league games? Right? They'll miss a lot of things in life. But they try because fathers understand that a young boy, when he succeeds on the field, the first person he wants to look at is who? It's the father. It's his joy. And when he does well and he looks to the stand, that's not there as an empty seat. He's crushed. No matter what he accomplishes on the field, is lessened if his dad is not there experience that joy likewise with Christ what was Christ's joy it was not any earthly benefit it was not saving the world and making it a better place it was not any accomplishment on earth it was going to the cross he looked up and he saw his father's joy at his son's obedience to the father's will Christ said obey my commandments because that pleases God the Father. And my joy of pleasing God will be in you. And you will have it completely. That's our highest joy, isn't it? That is what keeps us going. Knowing that all that we do results in peace, love, and joy. And our highest joy It's God's glory. Oh, I have one final thought. Just one. I thought of many applications, but just have one for you. Are you a joyful Christian? Is your personality, character, disposition, countenance characterized by joy? Is joy a part of your constitutional attitude, or are you a half-hearted Christian? Are you a restless believer? Unsatisfied? Are you just full of complaints, full of grumbling? Are you always just downcast? Are you just full of self-pity and pity for, for yourself and resentment, bitterness, and anger at this world? Are you lacking joy? Is that a mark against your character? You're someone that really has no joy. Only one reason. There's only one reason if there's a lack of joy in your life and you call yourself a Christian. It is not because of finances. It's not because of your work or your boss or your spouse or your children. It's not because of trials or temptations or anything in this world. There's only one reason the lack of joy in your life is because you are not obeying Christ. You are not. Joy is the fruit of, the fruit of the Spirit for someone who walks in the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Philippians 4.4, 4, joy is the command of God. Joy is the only right and appropriate response to the revelation of our great God and of our great salvation. John 15.11, Christ promises His joy and joy in abundance and fullness to all those who obey His commands. Joy is God's promise. True joy is the product of the Word of God sown in a believer's heart. In fact, for believers who go through trials and persecution, even loss, they might be experiencing hardship, but undergirding that, there is joy, just like Christ. Just like Paul, 2 Corinthians 6.10, 
full of sorrow, but what did he say? Rejoicing. He, he recounted to the Corinthians all the sufferings he endured, all the hardships, beating with, beaten with rods, right, three times, right, 39 lashes times three, you do the math, right? being shipwrecked, being forsaken, on top of all of that, caring for the churches. He says, I'm full of sorrow, but I'm rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 7.4 In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. The Christian who is obeying Christ, there is always undergirding joy. But to the disobedient Christ, there is an undergirding bitterness, resentment, anxiety, sharp edge of anger and frustration. Which category do you belong to? The first sign of a person's faith withering and drying up is a loss of joy. If you want to diagnose your spiritual health this morning, look at the level of your contentment, of your satisfaction, and of your joy, and you will find immediately the level of your your obedience to Christ. And David prayed in Psalm 51, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. When did that joy of his salvation disappear? Did that happen when Nathan rebuked him? No. When Nathan rebuked him, confronted him, that's when his joy was being recovered. David lost the joy of his salvation when he was in the roof of his house and he looked beyond the courtyard and saw Bathsheba bathing and he coveted her. He lusted after her. And when he made those steps of adultery and murdering Uriah, that's when he lost joy. Lost the joy of his salvation. Psalms 32, he recounts the experiences, his thoughts, while he was in sin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through, through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. When I acknowledged my sin to you, and when I did not cover up my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then you forgave my iniquity. And he concludes, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. A child of God experiences only misery when he is not obeying Christ, when he is not abiding in Christ, therefore not experiencing Christ's joy. It is important that we need Christ, not just for heaven, but for every day we live on this earth. We need Christ. There is absolutely no reason for a believer to not have joy. Absolutely none. What about you this morning? Would you be characterized as someone who doesn't have joy? Someone who has lost the joy of their salvation, the joy of abiding in Christ? Where are you seeking to find this joy, this lasting joy? Are you looking in the world? Looking in relationships? Looking at money? Possession, some kind of status? What fruitless joys are you holding on to? And I talk to Christians and when I probe and probe and probe, and I, when I find the things that are holding, that, holding them back from obeying Christ, it is so anticlimactic. It's so, like, that's it? Like, that's, that's the trifle that you're holding on to? That's what you're afraid to lose? That's why you're not abiding in Christ? What fruitless joys, joys that you know that are really empty, vain and passing, are you holding on to? Immorality, pornography, inappropriate relationships, impurity, jealousy, greed for this world, covetousness, love for self, selfishness, Is it pride? Is it worldliness? Is it fame? Is it the love of strangers? 
Is it the, the, the fleeting comforts and pleasures of this world? Why hold on to these trifles when the true and sovereign joy awaits us if we would only abide in His love by joyfully, willingly, voluntarily obeying His commandments? For many of you this morning, may God grant you the joy of repentance. May you experience what David experienced when he was confronted by Nathan. Like, like Joe, he was lying to us. He wasn't lying to God. And we saw right through that. God sees right through you. We see right through you. Right? Will you experience the joy of being confronted by the Word of God? The joy of repentance? Joy of seeing your sins as they are? And submitting yourself to the commands of Christ? that you might experience firsthand His love. Let's pray. Lord, we do repent and confess that oftentimes we have a wrong view of the Word of God. Oftentimes our sinful hearts cause us to see them as burdensome as a list of rules and regulations that we need to do because we are Christians. Rather than seeing them as they are, expressions of your love given to us that we might abide in you and that we might experience firsthand your goodness and your love. Oh Lord, we do pray that through the Holy Spirit you will grant hearts that are tender towards your word And that we, each believer here, will let go of these vain, fleeting joys of this world so that we might know the true sovereign joy, the joy of pleasing you, of bringing glory to you here on earth. Oh Lord, grant us tender hearts to stay, to be moved, by the word of God to repent to repent of sin and to abide in your love pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ Amen